Colton Hightower spent 30 years as a salesperson in his life and not only selling items, but also training people in the art of sales. And along the way, he picked up quips and quotes, uh, hundreds of them, and he began to write them down as he heard them, observed them, and he put them in a book or two and also sent many of these articles to magazines. And he had a column, which I never heard of, called Salty Sally in the newspaper some years ago. Maybe some of you remember that column, but I don't remember it. The quip that I pick out today that kind of makes me think about Peter's conversation is this. Wisdom it's what is what is left after we've run out of all of our personal opinions. Wisdom is what is left after we've run out of all of our personal opinions. As noted by Todd a couple of weeks ago, Mark 8 is a pivotal point in the gospel, like a seesaw, maybe just finding that balance between discovering who Jesus is and following him. And in this chapter... Jesus asks his disciples what people are saying about him, a sort of informal Gallup poll. Their observations include Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets, and, and maybe there were others as well. But then, as you remember, Jesus pointedly asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, like the students I work in sub-teaching sometimes at La Academia, are eager to raise their hands with the right answer, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And we know from the Bible and other sources that there are many opinions about the role of this coming Jewish Messiah and many thoughts, many ideas of theology about how this Messiah would play out in, in, in further history. And so we see Peter getting it right and enjoying it. And we recognize that we, we too often understand, we understand who Jesus is, and we enjoy getting that right, don't we? At least I know I do. We get that concept. And yet, like Peter, it can also be easy to understand who Jesus is and at the same time be uncomfortable, be upset with Jesus naming suffering as a common denominator of our life of his life and our life. It kind of brings into question why we love Jesus in the first place. Is it because life is good or is it because Jesus is good and we like what Jesus is doing? So when Peter, who is one of the crowd, one of the in crowd, gets the right answer and hears Jesus begin teaching about how he will suffer and be rejected and die sentenced by religious leaders, be killed, and that anyone claiming to be a follower of Jesus can expect the same thing. I imagine Peter losing it about that moment. Imagine him not being able to follow that concept because he has the right idea about Jesus. This doesn't match his opinion. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Note that he does it kind of gracefully off to the side, which we all wish to receive it that way. But he does this not because he doesn't understand Jesus, but because he thoroughly understands what Jesus is saying, and he doesn't like it. 
I think Peter is completely undone by Jesus' description of himself and his followers and the role of suffering in our lives. I think Peter hits a wall in his faith walk and there's no going over it with his current opinion. St. John of the Cross writes about these times. He calls it a dark night of our soul when God works in our lives not through joy and light but through sorrow and darkness. He continues that at a certain point in our spiritual journey, God will draw a person from the beginning stage to another deeper stage in faith. And in this process, people will experience what is called the dark night of the soul. And then St. John goes on to describe seven deadly sins that God wants to purify us in this dark night of the soul. And the fifth one, I believe, fits Peter's situation. Spiritual wrath. Spiritual wrath. And John describes it this way. When we begin to enjoy the benefits of the spiritual life, and then they're taken away. Spiritual wrath. Then comes anger, bitterness, frustration. Or as in Abraham and Sarah, just, if you can't cry, you're going to what? You're going to laugh. You're going to laugh at something that seems so unreasonable. And we recall, we recall Peter early in Mark eagerly leaving the family business to follow Jesus. And now he loses all the joy of following all his preconceived ideas of what this is going to be like. It's just out the window. And he cannot embrace it. And yet, what is interesting to me and revealing to me and somewhat comforting to me is the words of invitation to follow Jesus in Mark 1.17 when, when Peter accepts Jesus' call to follow him. And the words, get behind me, Satan, they are the same. They are the same words. And so we might understand that Peter, Jesus saying to Peter, in your misguided Satan-like looking out for yourself, won't you just please line up behind me? Get behind me. We too, as the Leader magazine describes, have been steadily showing up for worship and potlucks and teaching Sunday school, serving on committees, volunteering, working, raising families, mentoring others, going on service trips, and you can keep adding the list. And we might ask, where does suffering and death fit into all this stuff? I find it helpful to understand death and suffering and resurrection at two levels. This is not a new idea, but there's my physical death. It's going to happen. Peter knows that. I don't think this is what he is rebelling about. And then there's the death of self at a second level, the death of loving God only because life is good, or the language of of uh, the Mark's gospel, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross, follow me. For those who want to save their life, are going to, they're going to lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will, will save it. And then there's, I think, it follows two levels of suffering. We know about the physical, emotional, relational pain we have in life, whether it's cancer, divorce, injury, loss, separation, you name it. That's suffering at one level. 
And then there's the suffering that happens because we have, because we have lined up behind Jesus. It follows that resurrection has these two levels as well, from our own death and from our suffering, which is the point of the Lenten theme this season, that we might find resurrection in this upside-down, inside-out world we live in. On a personal note, I get the wisdom that suffering builds character. I get that. But I tell you, there was a time or two in my life when I told God, I think I have enough character. I think I have enough now, already. And, and it kind of felt good to tell God that, but it was very real for me. And I think we can identify with that. Brian Yoder Schleyball the news and media manager at Gerson College shares a prayer written by a student at St. Peter's Seminary in Ankawa, northern Iraq, where Mennonite Central Committee provides English teachers. The student is among the Christians who fled from Karmalesh in Iraq's Nineveh Plain as the Islamic State group advanced, and she writes... As you carried your cross, O Lord, we carried it too. We lost everything except the cross hanging around our neck and the ones in our cars. We looked at this cross when we were forced to leave our houses. It is the cross of pain and loss and hope. It is the cross of sadness and the hope. It is the cross of the resistance and the steadiness of those who endure injustice but respond to it in love, even when we feel that injustice is increasing. We carried this cross from our lands in Nineveh to other lands, and we still hang on to it. In spite of all this, you can see the smiles on our faces. You feel the goodness of our neighbors. We are full of hope and trust in you, O Lord. Yoder Schleybach concludes, Here's a person whose life has been turned upside down, yet still finds something to hang on to. But when our lives are comfortable, what cross do we bear? Maybe taking up our cross means a daily choice to remember those whose lives are upended by conflict, to love those who are hard to love, to serve others over ourselves, and to seek justice in an unjust world. For myself and for all of us, we need not travel to Iraq to experience suffering because we line up behind Jesus. We have our families, we have our communities, our workplaces. These places are also real. And I believe in my own experience somewhat, and maybe yours, that when we do line up behind Jesus in our places, there are times Label it suffering, whatever you may label it, it will happen because we choose to line up behind Jesus. And so to paraphrase Colton Hightower, God's divine wisdom is what's left after we've run out of personal human opinions regarding the connection of following Jesus and suffering and death. 
and what Paul recalls in Romans 4 about Abraham and Sarah are not the laughter, is not the laughter, but it is the tension they felt between coming up with their own solutions and trusting God's timing. That tension between ourself and God and our own working things out and, and waiting for God to, to work in us. May we all live in this tension because as we are undone by the thought of suffering, we and Peter cannot always connect suffering with following Jesus. It just doesn't always feel a connection. But maybe we're like the blind man in Mark 8.24 when we and Peter may need more than one encounter to see Jesus clearly. How about a hundred? Undone by suffering, we lose our lives to gain it. Undone by suffering, we move toward the hopeful promise of resurrection, carrying our cross. And undone by suffering, we line up behind Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes you are hard to follow. Sometimes we say, be reasonable, Jesus. Don't talk to us about suffering and rejection and death and dying. And Lord, like Peter, when we said we would follow you, we sometimes have something better in mind. Lord, please understand, we're just trying to keep you and us safe. But keep us close by your side and give us the imagination to see what you see and the courage to follow you into it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.